This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We are brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm, Celtics beat writer for Mass Live. I'm joined by Nicole Yang of the Boston Globe. First of all, Nicole, run us through everything that relevant that has happened in the last 48 hours here. Well, so first, the games today have been officially postponed by the league. The NBA said in a statement that the playoffs, they will start either, or they hope to start either tomorrow or Saturday, but no new schedules have been released. There's no new date for game one yet. According to one report, it's supposed to start on Sunday. Nothing official from the team. The players met last night, and then this morning there was a call with the Board of Governors and players, and it just seems to be like there's just ongoing conversations basically about what exactly can be done. We haven't heard from any of the Celtics. There's been no media availability. We have not heard a statement from the Celtics. According to some reports, Jalen Brown, unsurprisingly, was an active voice in some of the conversations so far. There are still to be more conference calls this evening, except instead of every player that's in the bubble, it's just two representatives per team. And I have to imagine that Jalen Brown is one of them for the Celtics. Um, you mentioned that the Celtics haven't put out a statement yet. It, it is a little strange that we've gotten nothing. And I mean, I'm wondering if they think or if they feel that putting out, obviously, the ways that you can get in touch and, and demand justice for Jacob Blake. I'm wondering if they feel like that is a statement somehow, um, because we haven't gotten anything else from them yet. It's not like just teams that are participating or just teams that have had their games postponed are releasing statements. By now, yeah. the Celtics fall in the second category, but like we've seen the Pelicans, the Warriors, the Suns, the Knicks. The Knicks, the Knicks put out a statement. You don't really want to be behind the Knicks. <laughs> I don't really know what's going on there, and it is just a statement, but at the same time, like... It's like the bare minimum. You'd like to see the bare minimum. That has been really weird. Jalen, obviously, uh, to nobody's surprise, it sounds like he's been pretty involved in all these things. I, I thought it was... I thought it was cool. I, I was, I was a little like, I don't know, a little eyebrow raised when I, when I heard that like players were really mad at the Bucks last night for, you know, not really giving them the heads up. It seemed like pretty clear that this was like a somewhat, you know, somewhat spontaneous thing. So, I mean, it, it seemed a little strange that, that players were apparently upset that they were kind of left in the lurch. Uh, I did think it was noteworthy that Jalen, um, was the player that Woj singled out as like being like, no, nah, like fully support. You don't need to, uh, explain yourself to anybody. Yeah. I mean, I take every report that we get with a grain of salt because oh yeah who's leaking this to them like i can ownership leaking this to them because i'm sure ownership was not pleased by the bucks decision to do this without any sort of notice so i don't really know how much credence i give to everything obviously you pay attention to it all and try and like piece everything together uh, a couple of reports have come out in the last, what, 24, 48 hours. Um, one of them from Chris Mannix of a few different outlets, including NBC Sports Boston. He said, to many, it's unclear exactly what more NBA owners can do. They've committed to the social justice movement. They've supported players during anthem demonstrations. They've committed $300 million over the next 10 years to economic empowerment in the black community. 
that felt pretty tone deaf to me to be like, well, what more do you want from us? We've, we've put all this money into it. And especially when you think about like, okay, 300 million is, is a lot of money, like over, over 10 years. But like for most owners, that's actually not 30 million a year, like, you know, split up among, among a bunch of owners. Like it, it really is not, uh, it, it's certainly not going to break the bank for them. Credit Sam Sheehan, Tom. He's the one that calculated it. That's actually a good point. We have the numbers here. We, we can pull them out. $10 million a piece for someone worth $3 billion is the equivalent to $150 a year for someone making $45K a year. And then uh, as somebody else pointed out, not to mention that $10 million is spread across 10 years. So that's the equivalent of about $15 a year for a $45,000 salary. It is a lot of money. It is, it is not like the owners offering that amount of money and then saying, what else can we do? It, it's pretty tone deaf. I think this is the equivalent of people saying that they are financially conservative and socially liberal. Like, oh, I support, you know, everyone. But it's like, no, like your financially conservative policies, though, are directly undermining the social causes that you purport to support. People can say whatever they want, but then it's like, okay, actually, like, where are you policy wise? And also, where is your money going? You know, the, the NBA likes to put out this sort of image of like a united front and like, you know, like we're all like we're a partnership. We're all working together. Like, I don't know that that's always the case. Eh? Like, I, I very much don't think that's always the case. Like, you know, every time there's labor strife, it's like the players against the owners and they're all they're always fighting for the, the same pieces of the pie. But now, obviously, it's it's something else where the players are fighting for justice. And I, I think that as everyone kind of educates themselves and, and kind of looks at, at the root of the problem as opposed to just like the symptom of the problem. It, it could get really messy because I think, you know, that those roots run deep and they run through the, the NBA owners as well. I was slightly uncomfortable with how uh, much we had praised Robert Kraft in the last episode, <laughs> just knowing that he has Trump ties. And I'm sure if you dig deep into what he's been up to, I mean, I think you could probably dig shallowly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's going to, I don't think it would require too deep a dive, but I think what we were trying to say, though, is like, that's a good first step. I thought that was a good plan by Kraft. Yeah, I stand by what we said about his about that plan being good. Like, I, you know, like you just take the name Robert Kraft out of it and be like, OK, like a person with a lot of money would like to do this with his money. And I'd be like, yes, that's I think that's a good way to, to spend some money. Just to sort of like wrap things up. So we don't know the next time we're going to speak to the Celtics. We haven't received any sort of word about media availability. While we were recording, the Boston Bruins released a statement. <laughs> Anytime you're losing to hockey, you, you got to come on, guys. Don't lose to hockey. Don't lose to the Knicks and also hockey. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I have no idea what's going on. But anyway. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to have our conversation with Curtis Harris. Sunday, Sunday, Sundays are coming back in the NFL. With NFLSundayTicket.tv, you can stream every live out-of-market NFL game every Sunday afternoon on your favorite devices. Plus, Red Zone and DirecTV Fantasy Zone channels, so never miss your favorite teams and favorite players. No matter where you live, NFLSundayTicket.tv is your key to the most glorious Sundays ever. Use promo code BLUEWIRE at checkout to get 15% off your subscription. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use promo code BLUEWIRE. From tight muscles, tough workouts, signs of aging, to simply making it through each busy day, everyone understands what it feels like to be tense and sore so everyone can benefit from TheraOne CBD products. Started by Jason Worsland, TheraBody exists to provide you with the best scientifically validated natural solutions to help soothe your body and relax your mind. 
It started with the revolutionary Theragun percussive therapy device when Dr. Jason saw the benefits of using CBD in his treatments. He created TheraOne to bring you CBD products done right. A lot of CBD products claim organic but still contain up to 30% filler, and these fillers are potentially toxic. TheraOne tests their products four times before they get to you. Every product is USDA certified organic, grown in the U.S., and their CBD extracts are the highest quality available anywhere. Use TheraOne's warming lotion in your morning routine, the cooling lotion or massage oil to recover, body balm for targeted relief, and sleep tincture to drift into a deep night's sleep. And now through Labor Day, Monday, September 7th, TheraOne is offering our listeners a buy one, get one free for all TheraOne products. But you've got to go to theragun.com slash bluewire. If you don't love what you get from TheraOne, send it back for a full refund within 30 days of purchase. This is not something TheraOne is likely to do again. Buy one, get one free at theragon.com slash bluewire, but only until Labor Day. Go right now to theragun, T-H-E-R-A-G-U-N dot com slash bluewire. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Nicole and I are thrilled to be joined by Curtis Harris. Uh, you might know him from Twitter as at Pro Hoops History. Wanted to have you on. You, you tweeted out a, a really interesting thread earlier today. We're recording this on Thursday about the maybe like the other most famous moment in NBA history um, when players refused to play, you know, over labor strife. Can you just kind of take us through kind of the story behind it was the 1964 All-Star Game? So when you kind of get back to historical events, it's always the stuff before the actual event. Uh, I kind of got to get the backstory on it. So I'll try to remember my dates correctly. But uh, 1954, I believe, is when Bob Cousy created the, the Players Association. And so throughout the 1950s, Cousy was struggling to kind of get players to, first of all, just join the association. Uh, it also contribute dues to actually make it functioning. Uh, then the next hurdle was actually to get the owners to recognize the association as like the representative body for the players for the grievances that they had, mostly at that time pertaining to kind of uh, too many exhibition games, travel accommodations. That's really sort of basic stuff. And finally, I think in 1957, they finally got uh, some recognition on that fact where the owners kind of still too many exhibition games. But they kind of cut down the number of exhibition games and also the whispering fine, uh, which was something about like players getting fined for uh, technical fouls they got during games. But they'd be like, surprise, here's a fine. They're like, why, why isn't this like regulated and formalized? So players kind of upset about the, their money being taken away like that. So by the early 60s, Cousy uh, cedes a leadership of the union over to Tommy Heinsohn. It's very important that at this point, you kind of start getting this this conflation or a combination, I should say, of the labor issues and the racial problems going on. Because in 1959, that was when Elgin Baylor, who was with the uh, Minneapolis Lakers, they were playing a game in Charleston, West Virginia, and the hotel in Charleston refused to have the Lakers stay there because the Lakers had three black players, including Baylor. So... Baylor refused to play in that game in 1959. The two other black players did, but Baylor refused to do so. And so although the whole team played besides him, he sat out that game. So that was really the first major instance of a player, you know, striking and refusing to play, you know, for an issue like that. Then in 1961, this is during the exhibition season, uh, the Celtics and the St. Louis Hawks were playing in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And this was this was pretty famous. Uh, Bill Russell and Casey Jones, Sam Jones, Let's see if some guys from the St. Louis Hawks as well. Basically, all the black players from both teams refused to play in that game because they've been refused some service at the hotel that was there um, in Lexington. So that one was also pretty famous. That one was widely covered at the time as well. 
And so by 1964, when you have the all-star game situation, like I say, you now have just like this combination of uh, the black players having felt slighted for so many years with the racial issues, not directly caused by the owners, but like they felt like, you know, that issue is not being taken seriously enough. Then, of course, everybody is dealing with the labor problems because we're now 10 years after the union have been formed. And the owners were still, you know, technically acknowledged the union, but weren't really dealing with them on a serious fashion. So for a couple of years, the players have been trying to get a pension created. And the owners were just refusing really to kind of deal with it seriously. Uh, and the commissioner as well, who was Maurice Podoloff. So that brings us to January 1964. All-Star Game is in Boston. And also the NBA had gotten a new commissioner. So this is really important. So the previous commissioner, Maurice Podoloff, he retired at the end of the 63 season. Jay Walter Kennedy, he becomes the new commissioner for the 1964 season. So he's new. He hasn't been dealing with all the drama for the past decade. Uh, he hasn't been stonewalling the players. And so he, and like I said, he's kind of new to all this, what's going on, the politics that were going on with the NBA. So he's really only like six months on the job when the 1964 All-Star game comes around. And another important factor, this is where like the kind of just in the moment is really important. There was a huge snowstorm. Uh, in the U.S. at that point. And so players were trying to get to Boston for the All-Star game, and most of them didn't get to Boston until like, you know, 3, 4, 5 o'clock that afternoon, and the game is supposed to start at 9 o'clock. So you can imagine kind of the nerves of the guys at that moment being like, you know, hell, we just got through the snowstorm. We tried to fly, but we couldn't fly to the city. So we had to like fly to D.C., take a train from D.C. up to Boston. Because uh, like Oscar Robertson, he remembered that it took him 30 hours to get from Cincinnati to Boston. So you can just imagine how, you know, just ticked off and wary a lot of the players are at, at that point. And so then so the, the members of the committee of the, the pension committee for the players union, uh, it was Tom Gola, Lenny Wilkins, and the third player I can't remember. They go to the to the owners like, all right, we would like to you know work on this pension plan. We want to meet about it. And the owners kind of like they were like, oh yeah yeah, it's kind of like a we we, we it's like what did you say? Uh, I don't know. So they basically tried to be like, yeah, we'll give you a pension plan. We're not going to put down any details or assign anything. And so the players by this point also had an attorney, Larry Fleischer, on their side because, like, they rised up and realized we need legal representation to make sure we're not getting screwed over on anything. Larry Fleischer heard that the pension committee had gotten some quasi-agreement with the owners, but Fleischer was like, well, can we see it? And the players were like, well, they haven't exactly, you know, fleshed out the details. They said they'll talk about it later, but they've, they've agreed to, you know, talk about this. And Fleischer's like, oh, no, I want this written down. I want it on paper. We want to make sure this is going to be legit because we don't want to get the, the, you know, the runaround. And the owners refused to basically put anything on paper. Eventually, you know, Heinsohn, as president of the union, the vice president was Bob Pettit. Uh, they were like, okay, this is ridiculous. Like, we need to go and talk to the owners to get something written down uh, to get, an, like, an assurance that we're going to get this pension agreement done this year because we've, we've been waiting for years to get a pension. So they are kind of paused because then it goes to the next step as to what goes on. So I don't want to like, be rambling here. But, uh, like, any, anything confusing or stuff that kind of caught your interest so far? Yeah, so one thing I wanted to ask, this kind of goes back to like the, the formation of the union. Um, early, you know, kind of like the history of labor unions, there was obviously like a lot of problems where, you know, the white unions, the white labor unions were just kind of like, well, we don't really want to, you can correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, but like, I think I remember the white labor unions were like, we kind of have our own things to deal with. We don't want to really deal with like the race thing. So that was like one of the reasons why early on the labor unions were mostly white because they, they were kind of segregating they yeah. were kind of that out. Were there any issues with that? I mean, you mentioned that Kuzi, you know, was running it early and then he passed it off to Tommy Heinsohn. Were, were there, did that dynamic come into play at all in the NBA at that point? Uh, so actually, that's a big part of what my uh, dissertation I'm working on is about. 
I don't like don't want to overstate it. It'd be like, you know, the, the NBA players union was like this, you know, wonderland of racial utopia and like there were never any problems between the players or anything related to that. But compared to other labor unions, like you've been mentioning, like there there wasn't a black basketball players union and a white players union. Mm-hmm. Like it was one union. And of course when Cousy founded it in fifty four, the NBA was like ninety five percent white. So obviously the most you know, the vast majority of the membership is white. Uh ten years later in sixty four, the NBA I'm not going to remember the exact number, but I think by that point, it was something like between 35 and 40 percent of the league was black. And at the All-Star game, uh, I think that was the first, either that year or the year before, I think it was the first time that just over half the All-Stars were black. So you know, there was definitely demographic change going on with the league, but that didn't seem to hamper the effort or the unity of the players in trying to address the labor needs that were going on. Um, now with the some of the segregation stuff on the road, that was a different problem, but the white players, at least the ones that talk about it, uh, they seem to realize and become sensitive to the fact that, you know, the black players weren't being treated fairly uh, at, at these locations. So, for example, in 61, when uh, Bill Russell and Casey Jones and the other black players left that game in Kentucky, uh, none of the white players were like, well, you know, they, they screwed us over. You know, they left us hanging high and dry. The white players were like, yeah, we, we get it. On the other side, though, the black players, some of them, you know, say that we wish the white players would have joined us in leaving and boycotting the game. But the white players are still saying, you know, we understand where they're coming from. We're not going to hold it against them that they decided to protest uh, the segregation that was going on. So, again, not utopia, but they weren't at each other's throats uh, on this. But getting to the 64 All-Star game, the threatened strike or the strike that succeeded, I guess, because they actually did play the game. Like I said, Heinsohn was the president. He's white. Bob Pettit was the VP. He was also white. And then Oscar Robertson. I don't know if he had an official title, but he was like the unofficial third leader in the union. And of course he was black. So many of the vocal players uh, were black as well and trying to push for having to strike at that point. And Heinsohn agreed and so did Bob Pettit that they should have to strike. Like I know Oscar Robertson just had like a lot of just reprehensible stuff happen to him like throughout his career. How did he like, do you know kind of how he felt about that dynamic of having like the labor union be run by uh, the president, the VP, both being white, you know, in a league that was growing more diverse? He's never, at least as far as I've seen, he's never uh, talked or written about it, but Mm -hmm. it seems like he didn't have a problem with it because it seems like, you know, the the leadership was on board with, you know, the, the goals of getting better labor rights and, um, again, you know, not opposing any desegregation efforts. Like um, the player, uh, this is very important. The white players in the NBA, again, there might have been a few instances here or there that I don't know about, but from everything I've read, no white players ever were like, oh, these black players are stealing our jobs. The owners, on the other hand, the black players said that the owners had these quota systems where like the owners didn't want to have too many black players on the team. So the white owners might have been a problem, but not the white players. They they were not a problem for the black players at that point. Okay, yeah. So, you know, I feel like that sets the stage pretty well. So can, can you kind of, like, take us through, like, what happened in kind of the locker room um, in, in 64, like, before that All-Star game, and just Heinsohn's role, you know, Oscar's role, yeah. just, just kind of what, what happened there? This is why the setup was important, going all the way back to 54 with Kuzi and the stonewalling that had happened over the previous decade to get even just minor concessions. Um, so when the owners gave him, like I said, that kind of mumbling memory, like, yeah, maybe we did, maybe we didn't promise to talk about the pension. And when Larry Fleischer, the, the player's attorney, was like, well, let's go talk with him again. The commissioner, remember, he's new, six months on the job. Kennedy is like, well, sure, of course, we'll go talk about it. And so he's like kind of ignorant and naive about what's going on here. He like, he's like, oh, yeah, let's go talk with the owners and try to get this hashed out. And the owner's like, oh, no, we refuse to talk with Larry Flasher. He's not a player. It's like he, he can't be in the room. And the player's like, well, he's our representative, our legal representative. He should be in the room. We're talking about issues relating to uh, our agreements with the ownership. 
But this caused a stalemate. The players were like, well, all right, you guys don't want to talk about it. We don't want to play the game tonight. So the players and the commissioner kind of go back to the locker room. The players tell the commissioner, like, we know you're trying to do your best, but you need to go back and talk to the owners and tell them that we're not going to play until they agree, not to a specific pension plan at that moment, but that they, they are concretely going to talk about creating a pension plan uh, that spring at the Board of Governors meeting in April. Kennedy goes off to try to talk to owners to kind of come to an agreement or at least to a commitment. And the players are like, yep, we're going to strike. And uh, this is about 8 p.m. and the game starts at 9 o'clock. This is also super important. This game is going to be televised nationally. And that, that was a rare circumstance for the NBA to get a nationally televised game. And the players knew that this is leverage. Like, the owners kind of threatened them, saying, like, you guys are going to ruin the NBA. This is our, like, our biggest televised event ever. You're going to ruin it. You're going to ruin the league. And the players are like, well, we're already not getting paid enough. So if we ruin something that we're not getting paid enough to do, oh, well. <laughs> so it's like, you, you lose out too. It's not, it's not just us that are going to lose out on this. So the next 45 to 50 minutes is just like, uh, just, 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 just as heated back and forth with some of the owners yelling through the locker room door because the players locked themselves into one locker room, both the East and West players. And the most famous owner was, uh, I think it was Bob Short of the LA Lakers. Like he was yelling at Jerry West and Elgin Baylor to get out of there. Otherwise they'll never play in the NBA again. And Elgin Baylor yells out, you know, tell Bob Short to go F himself. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> So, yeah, the players like, we're not having this. Uh, we're not coming out to you guys agree to seriously discuss this pension plan. Cause like, we've been dealing with this nonsense for 10 years now. Uh, we need a pension plan. Finally, uh, according to Oscar and Heinz and Dave, they're the ones who've written about it, uh, the most. Um, they said, I think it was like 10 minutes. Yeah, 8.50, 10 minutes before tip off was supposed to happen. Walter Kennedy was like, guys, I can't get the owners to commit, but he's like, please take my word that I will get them to commit to this, you just got to give me more time. It's like, I can't do it right now because they're, they're too far gone. It's like, he's basically like, I've only been here six months. I've started, like, whatever the previous commissioner did, I, I can't, I'm not responsible for that. But he's like, I'm going to try to do a better job than what he did. And Heinsohn was like, okay, fellas, like, that is a good point. Kennedy's only been around for six months. Let's give him a chance to be better than the previous commissioner. So the players relented, 10 minutes to tip off. Um, some of them still wanted to strike, but there was a consensus that like, okay, we have, we've made our point that we're willing to strike the game. Uh, if, if they, if they don't in the future agree to these pension plans. So they did come out, the game was delayed until, uh, I think 915 was when they finally tipped off. So there was a delay, uh, but the TV, uh, network, I think it was ABC, uh, didn't mention anything about the strike. It was just mom on the network, like, no, nothing's, nothing's had just a slight delay. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know why like, they got to, you know, inflate the balls a little bit more. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the audience had no idea what was going on. Interesting. So you shared a Twitter thread sort of mm-hmm. summing up the 1964 strike. And I saw a writer from The Athletic quote tweet it, and he said that yesterday's strike was sort of, quote, rooted in the 1964 All-Star Game strike. Do you agree with that? Like, what's your take on sort of how these two events are connected, if they are? I mean, it's definitely connected in the sense that, you know, these are, these were players willing to assert themselves and not just, you know, not not just play the game because they, you know, they're supposed to. What happened yesterday, you know, the Bucks initiating the strike is different because, like, it was something, I don't, I don't, maybe this is not the right word, but it was, like, purely off-court stuff. Like, you know, it's about police brutality and racism across the United States. It's not something specific to the NBA. So it is different in that fashion to what happened in 64, which is deeply rooted in what the owners were doing to the players at that point. But again, I think they're very much tied in. The players are willing to assert themselves to do what they think is right and not just play basketball uh, no matter what. Like they're willing to stop playing the game to do what they think is right, if they think that's going to help their cause out. 
Um, and then in the first tweet of your thread, you said that Celtics owner Walter Brown never forgave Tommy Heinsohn yeah. for pulling that labor stoppage. And that got me thinking about how maybe yesterday's incident will affect the relationships between players and owners moving forward. How soon was it evident that Brown was sort of pissed at Tommy? And like, I know it's a little early to tell, but like, yeah. how do you think this will affect the relationships between players and owners moving forward? Walter Brown, as like I mentioned in the Twitter thread, as good as it goes back then, he was probably the best owner in the NBA. In, in Heinsohn, he wrote about it. Uh, that's where I get a lot of this info from. It's from Heinsohn himself, uh, what he wrote in one of his books. Uh, he said, you know, Walter Brown actually paid some of the fare for Heinsohn to attend some of the, the players' union meetings. And so Tommy didn't think that Brown was the problem. You know, basically, you know, the, the system that was set up was the problem. And so, like, maybe Walter Brown might treat you fairly, but, like, there's still eight other owners at that time. Uh, eight other owners in the NBA, especially guys like Fred Zollner, uh, who owned the Pistons, they weren't going to give you a, a square deal no matter what. They, they, they were the stonewall. Like, maybe Brown would negotiate with you fairly, but the other guys won't. So Heinsohn was like, you know, as leader of the union, I had to do what I thought was right for the union, even if the guy I played for personally is doing a good job. But Brown saw it as, oh, like, it's the all-star game in Boston, at Boston Garden, to hear my player, Tom Heinsohn, who I treated so well, led this uprising and this embarrassed the league, it's embarrassed me in front of everybody in our home arena. So... Uh, and then unfortunately, Walter Brown died, I think, in August of 1964. So like really, they never had to repair their relationships. You know, like eight months later, Brown is dead. So it really just ended uh, with what they had. So now with today's situation, I'll say again, like you said, it's kind of maybe too soon to speak about it. But yeah. this specific issue with, you know, the police brutality and the racism seems like most of the owners, or at least the NBA itself, is on board with the players expressing themselves on this issue. So I think even if some owners are, you know, maybe ticked off that the players did this, I think that there's enough goodwill at this point to kind of let it simmer down. The owners won't take it too hard because the players have already said, like, all right, we're, we're going to restart the playoffs sometime this weekend. So cooler heads will prevail. The owners won't hold it against the players in the long run. If it happens again, no, 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 maybe a different story. Maybe it owners will be like, well, you guys did it once. And you made your point. Now you're doing it again. Like, this is now, now it's going too far. Who knows if that's going to happen down the line? I guess I was just curious because I saw Tillman Fertitta, and he might be on the opposite end of the spectrum when it yeah. comes to owners, but he was on MSNBC today sort of saying, like, players understand that we're all partners, and if the league doesn't do well, none of us do well. And he was sort of – A real Fred yeah. Zollner, if you will. Yeah, uh, yeah, Fertitta. I grew up a Rockets fan, so it pains me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, I've been able to let that go. <laughs> Be an adult without any allegiance to any particular team. But, uh, but no, um, <laughs> like, again, I would love to see, like, uh, if you could have every owner just give, a, you know, an anonymous quote how they really feel about it. It would be interesting to see how they, uh, how they would come down. But, yeah, the, the idea of a partnership is interesting. Because um, if they're partners, I think the players could be making some demands. I don't think we've seen that yet. But maybe the players have made stipulations like, we'll resume the playoffs under these conditions. Like, you guys got to commit to do more. Kind of like what happened with the 64 All-Star Game strike. Like the players relented only because they trusted the commissioner to get the owners to the table to discuss the pension plan, which is an important add-on to the, that conversation. Uh, the owners still stonewalled them after that. So the players are like, all right, yeah. these guys are still <laughs> – Kennedy may be doing his best, but the owners are still, uh, you know, being recalcitrant. So – uh, in 1965, the players finally got a mediocre pension plan, and they also had to threaten to strike this 1967 playoffs to get another actual legit pension plan. So that issue wasn't settled with the 64 All-Star game. Like, they had to threaten to not play all of the 1967 playoffs to finally get the owners to the table to give them a real pension plan. 
you know, and obviously this is a situation where the players aren't necessarily like fighting against the owners specifically. Yeah. Um, but it did, it did seem a little strange that the players, you know, kind of agreed to go back to the playoffs before they even got anything out of the owners. And I feel like in that situation back in the sixties, they threatened the, the really important televised all-star game. And then like you just said, they threatened the 1967 playoffs. Like they threatened like really important moments. Um, and it does feel like the leverage the players have in the bubble, it feels like they have like a, like a similar amount of, of power right now just because the league is like everybody else is hemorrhaging money during COVID and like the bubble is a way to recoup some of that. I mean, these are pressure points. The owners control the flow of money into the league to a certain extent, but the league doesn't create any money without the players, you know, getting on the court. Like ultimately that is the product. Like everything that's built around it is built around it, the players being on the court. Uh, especially at this moment, like you said, like there is nothing else that's going to do it. Like there's no arena revenue right now. Uh, the, like literally it's been cut to the bare bones of these guys being on the court. All the accoutrements are all gone. It's, it's now back to the basics, so to speak, of, you know, the actual basketball. But on the flip side, though, I've been thinking about, you know, there's also the mental impact on the players, yeah. too. I think this is also something that I think this is why the players, again, this is just me thinking out loud. Like maybe the players, hopefully they give more substantive interviews. Not that they haven't already, but just give us more info to go with. Uh, but, you know, but you got to imagine that, you know, the guys for the Bucks, for example, like this happened in their backyard. And if this were a regular playoff season, they could have, you know, made a day trip to Kenosha and be out there with the, with the protesters and, you know, actually participate in what's going on. But instead they're removed. They're down in Florida. They're separated from not only the protests, but also their families. And they really feel like, you know, they're cut off. So this is really was their, maybe not their only way, but definitely obviously their best way to make it known that they're not happy what's happening with what's happening in the country right now. So this is definitely different from 64 in that fashion, but I think that's what kind of drove them. And honestly, maybe they just needed three or four days off to yeah. kind of get their bearings once again and feel like they were physically and mentally ready to play basketball once more after another police shooting. And then some guy vigilante going off and shooting two other three other people and killing two of them. Yeah. Like you got to think that, you know, they, they just have to have some time off to really just regroup, whether you want to call it a strike, mental health break, whatever. Uh, they're still trying to deal with the racism going on in the country. And so I think, yeah, this, this, this was a, a really good move by them, I believe. You mentioned that, like, that I think you said it was ABC didn't even mention that there had been, like, a chance that this might not happen. Did the players, like, talk about it in, like, post game or something? Like, how did everybody know that, that this had all happened? Or did people know at the time? So with the, bro- I have never seen the broadcast. Just have the recollections of the people involved. There was some mention of it in newspapers at the time, but the extent of it was not known until, you know, later. Heinzen wrote a autobiography in the mid-70s. Great title, Heinzen, Don't You Ever Smile. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it's a great book. If y'all can find it on the cheap somewhere, it is a really great book. But Heinzen wrote about it. Obviously, Oscar wrote about it. Uh, Bill Russell mentions it, I think, in Second Wind, uh, his second autobiography. And other players throughout Recollections, obviously, over the years who were involved with it, they start talking about it. So it's become like this mythical moment from the players, but there's like just no video of it, obviously, and very little contemporary, like, you know, the day of or day after coverage of what took place. Uh, so it kind of flew under the radar for a little bit. But the 67 playoff, when they threatened to strike that, that was very public. There's lots of newspaper coverage about that. That was really interesting. Um, if folks can look, look up newspaper archives, you can see lots of quotes from Oscar Robertson and Dave Gamby, who was a player representative at that point. Like, they were very militant. And Gamby was, a uh, you know, Italian-American. Oscar's black, and they're both there. Like, we're not playing a damn game till they <laughs> agree to a pitching plan. Well, Thank you again, Curtis, for coming on. You guys, make sure you follow him at Pro Hoops History. Just a fascinating follow. And uh, obviously, as you just heard, a really smart guy. So, Curtis, thanks again, man. We really appreciate you. And uh, we will talk to you guys all soon.